Hello, I'm Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, and I lead the Justice, Equity, and Opportunity Initiative. Welcome to my podcast series, Walk, Listen, Learn, Our Journey to Justice. Why a podcast? Well, I wanted to combine three things I love, walking, listening, and learning. As the title suggests, I'm also passionate about people and finding engaging ways to discuss issues. So thanks for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking about the school to prison pipeline and particularly about what are the effects on young people and how we're able to make a change. My guest today is Elizabeth Todd Breland. Elizabeth is a member of the Chicago Board of Education. She's also an author, historian, associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where her areas of expertise include urban history, black history, racial politics, social justice, and education reform. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for walking, listening, and learning with us. Thank you so much. I love a walk and learn, so this is lovely. I do, too. I I think in a podcast is a great way to walk and just kind of think about issues while you're Mm -hmm. walking, so I'm glad that you're here. You know what? So we're talking about the school-to-prison pipeline. It's a term that people have been using for some time now. We know what schools are, of course, Mm -hmm. and we know what prisons are, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if everyone understands why uh, there's, there's this pipeline that connects schools to prisons. What does that even mean, school to prison pipeline? Sure, so when most people talk about a school to prison pipeline, they're talking about a set of policies and practices that move children, young people, youth, adolescents from schools in some way into the criminal legal system that may end with jail or prison Mm -hmm. or some type of confinement or detention. And those policies could include things like um, exclusionary discipline. Exclusionary discipline being suspensions, expulsions, It could also include things like having police based in schools, so the criminalization of youth by actual law enforcement officers in school buildings. Um, It could also just apply to sort of punitive, meaning uh, emphasis on punishment in Mm -hmm. disciplinary policies that happen at the school level. And that all of these things in some ways can be a funnel into the criminal legal system. Now, there are some uh, scholars, including a woman named Carla Shedd, Mm -hmm. who writes about this, who talks about a broader carceral continuum that involves schools. And what that means is then she's not just talking about what's happening in the schoolhouse, but referrals. So for example, if students are referred to mental health services or a um, state facility, or their parents are targeted for interventions that may remove children from the household Mm -hmm. and into the foster care system, that all of these spaces of state intervention can also move children into the criminal legal system in different ways. Interesting, because I've talked about how when I first started practicing law, I was on what at the time was called the um, child abuse and neglect side. Mm. Uh, Now it's called the child protection side of the court, the juvenile court. But I noticed that a lot of the young people on that side of the court ultimately ended up on the juvenile justice side. Is that kind of what you mean when you talk about other outside systems? Yes, that's right. So So that police in a school is not the only way that a school child could end up getting involved in the and, criminal And a lot of system. people kind of have narrowed this conversation about the school to prison pipeline to be about 
police in schools. Yes, but and, and I don't want to minimize that. That yeah. is, there is evidence that shows that police in schools lead to criminal justice or criminal legal system involvement for young people. But there's other but ways. But there are other ways as well. That's right. Yeah. And even some of the evidence, um, there was a study done in Philadelphia that was showing that in the juvenile courts, the vast majority of young people that were coming to the juvenile courts had some type of referral, whether that was a police, police being called on the child in the school or some type of school-related incident that found them or led them to being part of the juvenile court system. Um, and so it's not, again, just here in Chicago or here in the state of Illinois, but this is a national phenomenon. So can you talk a little bit more about some of those um, uh, different areas? You talked about policing in schools. Mm -hmm. You've talked about um, punishment. You talked about exclusionary discipline. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more, if you can, um, about what does that look like? So for a child, putting yeah. yourself in a in a student's shoes, what are the kinds of things that they might come up against that might ultimately lead to some sort of involvement with the justice system? Again, not necessarily meaning that it's jail or prison, because sure. you said that there could be other ways that they touch sure. that system. Yeah, so for example, um, in a sort of zero tolerance environment, and zero tolerance here meaning that a small infraction or a you know, first time in the adultification language, infraction would lead to a severe punishment like suspension or expulsion. So zero student. tolerance means it doesn't, I'm not giving you a second chance or a third chance. First time it happens, suspension or expulsion. Yeah, that, it, that ratchets up to a very high level of discipline. Mm -hmm. um, that by a student being in exclusionary discipline, now they're not in the school building for some period of time, and when they're out in the community during that time, there may be criminal legal system involvement based on the fact that they're not in school as they normally would be. Yeah, because school is a place where, you know, you know where you, you know where the students are, they're in the school yeah. building, they're not out in the community on the street, and that can lead to more contact with law enforcement particularly yes and particularly in communities where there is a large police presence mm -hmm. right that, that you're going to have even more interactions um, with police and other law enforcement officials outside of school and for so many young people school is a place of refuge yes. right so I also in, in talking about this I I want to talk about a tension that exists between school for so many being a place of refuge but also schools again nationally having these elements of discipline and control and punishment that are part of them as well um, so that's one route. Another okay. route could be if you are a child um, in a school that does have a police officer there and um, there's some action that could be, you know, talking back. It could be getting in a fight at school. It could be a number of different um, events that happen in, in the school and police get involved. Police are either called to the school or already are in the school to get involved and a child may be arrested. And I think we see some of the more high profile cases like this in the national news. Mm -hmm. um, a six-year-old young black girl in Florida who was arrested and taken out of the building in handcuffs, right? Um, and other such circumstances, um, young people being dragged or tased um, by police in schools and these sort of violent acts and harm that are caused to young people, disproportionately young black people, disproportionately um, diverse learners, uh, disproportionately indigenous students, and in some cases um, Latinx students who are being subjected to these practices. So there are lots of different routes by which young people in and around the school building can end up being involved in the criminal legal system. So there was a particular time, and I don't know if you are able to tell us all of the history necessarily sure. in this conversation, but you know, when I grew up, there were no police in the schools. Mm -hmm. There were no um, 
uh, metal detectors. Mm -hmm. We walked in the building. And then because of some really high profile uh, incidents of violence or gun violence around mm -hmm. the country, that's when we started to see um, you know, more of a police presence in schools. Mm -hmm. What kind of shifted over time that has led to this um, yeah. more, you know, having more police in schools? Yeah, well, I'll talk about Chicago because it's the case that I know the best in my own research. Mm -hmm. um, but in the 1960s, at the height of civil rights protests and activism, uh, police were actually in an organized way formally brought into schools to squash civil rights organizing by young people and also by teachers, particularly black young people who were involved in the civil rights movement and their black teachers who are trying to organize around um, civil rights issues. So that's one sort of way in which the police came in. Mm -hmm. There also were a lot of calls for police presence from teachers um, to come into the building uh, because of th fears of violence, mm -hmm. uh, often racialized or racist fears of violence among students. And so that's one point of origin. I think you see um, another sort of pivot point in the 1980s and then increasing in the 1990s where they're less there around um, putting down social movements um, and more there because of perceived threats of young people being criminals, right? Um, and I put this in quotations, gang activity in buildings, whether it's there or not, the perception of it. And then in the 1990s, you see increased federal funding for these er efforts. And that's where nationally. Federal funding for? Police and schools. Okay. Yeah, and law enforcement involvement in schools. Um, and you see an explosion nationally in the presence of police in schools, particularly in urban areas, particularly in schools with large populations of uh, students of color. Mm -hmm. And so that's another, another moment of turn that you see in the growth in of the presence of police in schools. In our more recent context in the 2000s, um, there's been another push for police in schools around high-profile mass shootings. Mm -hmm. um, and these are tragedies, no doubt. But also, uh, the rate of them is actually far lower than I think the public imagination imagines, these, these incidents of mass shootings. Again, always tragic, but not as commonly happening. And mm -hmm. so the the police response to that, the law enforcement response to that of bringing police into schools is out of proportion to the actual incidents of violence, gun violence in particular, happening in schools. But what ends up happening is once police are in schools, infractions that before would have been dealt with with a school counselor or a dean are now being dealt with by law enforcement. And that's another entryway into this school to prison pipeline. So whereas before talking back um, or getting in a fight in, in the hallway may have resulted in um, a call home to a parent, an intervention with a counselor in a more restorative environment, um, some circles, you know, uh, mm -hmm. or other types of restorative interventions, police are being used to address um, what are sort of common practice disciplinary issues in school buildings. Yeah, things that would have never really, you know, had police involvement. There would have been lots of other, you know, yes, other other places people could go to address, whether it's That's the counselor's right. office or the dean's office, mm -hmm. principal, whomever else. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, so let me just, um, you know, talk just a little bit more because you mentioned the six-year-old black girl, yeah. uh, I think you said in Florida. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, because I think you've referenced this a little bit about the sort of racial disparities yeah. that we might see. Uh, you talk specifically about um, black students, mm -hmm. uh, but also um, students who were diverse learners, mm -hmm. indigenous students, Latinx students. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more. I know in our, when you talk about a school to prison pipeline, we know that prisons and jails yes. and these types of facilities, we see dis racial disparities, yeah. ra racial and ethnic disparities. So it sounds like 
that pipeline also mm -hmm. perpetuates those same disparities. Absolutely. So when you see rates of expulsion, rates of suspension, race, mm -hmm. rates of police contact to address child behavior, student behavior, youth behavior in school buildings, um, those are disproportionately higher rates across all of those categories, particularly for black children, yeah. um, but also for other students of color, uh, as well as diverse learners, and sometimes exponentially so, right? Yes. Four, five, six, seven times. And I think also it's important to lift up um, gender disparities here. I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of focus on the disparities amongst boys, mm -hmm. uh, which is warranted. The rates of black boys in particular who are expelled suspended, have police contact, far exceeds their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. But the rates for black girls are also disproportionately higher. And that gap between the rate of police contact and expulsions and suspensions for black girls in relation to their white counterparts is often a larger gap than mm -hmm. the one for black boys and white girls. Wow. And there was actually a, a recent article um, in the New York Times, and it was called The Battle for the Souls of Black Girls. Mm -hmm. And it was about this very topic. Um, and a woman named Monique Morris, um, who authored a report called Push Out, the criminalization of black girls in school, talks about this and talks about this disproportionate punishment um, and police involvement for black girls that often stems from ways that young girls are as yeah. opposed to the things they do. Well, that that's what I wanted to pick up on because, mm -hmm. you know, I when I was a state representative, mm -hmm. I sponsored a bill to end preschool expulsion oh, here in Lord. Illinois. Yeah. and. When I talked about that bill, or when I mm -hmm. continue to talk about it, people are always like, wait, what do you mean preschool expulsion? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, preschoolers getting suspended mm -hmm. and expelled from preschool. They're That's three right. and four years old, and it was disproportionately black and then brown boys, but yes. mostly black boys, increasingly black and brown girls. Mm -hmm. What is it, yeah. if you were to say, and I know that this is a much broader, sure, but sure. there are some that would say, well, what are the students doing? You know, mm -hmm. people say that kind of thing. But when you see those kind of disparities, then you know that it is not just that, oh, these students, the black students or the brown students mm -hmm. or these black girls or what, are, you know, doing anything more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. So what is happening that we see these racial disparities yes. in our children? Yeah, I mean, it, it's institutional racism, right? So these are systemic issues. Um, and so, for example, for black girls, they often are expelled and suspended for what are called sort of subjective infractions. So that could be something like a dress code violation mm -hmm. or talking back um, or disruption. I'm putting that in quotation marks. Um, and so when you see those types of disparities, again, it's less about what it is they're actually doing, similar to um, sort of drug use data, right? Not to conflate the two, but that, you know, recreationally for marijuana, for example, people are kind of using all around. Children's behavior is kind of all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing that makes black children inherently worse behaved or better behaved than any other child, mm -hmm. but the way in which they're treated and the way in which their behavior is responded to, and I should say also developmentally appropriate behaviors for young children to be displaying um, is, is a product of institutional racism. Yeah, that was a lot of the conversation around the juvenile justice system. Mm -hmm. You know, we're doing work here in Illinois to transform our juvenile justice system mm -hmm. um, because when you think about adolescent brain development mm -hmm. and all that is going on, can children be children? Can they just yeah. be who they are without it being looked at as something that is some sort of 
infraction. Yeah, and and they can't, and that's the thing. I mean, I think one of there's a whole body of work around what they call adultification. Mm -hmm. And the, what is that? So mean? adultification of black children in particular is about black children being perceived as adults or more mature at a far younger age than their white peers. Mm -hmm. So as young as five and six years old, black girls in particular are being looked at as being more mature, that mm -hmm. they should be more mature, that they're they're um, displaying what would be a temper tantrum is now anger, or is now being framed in really adult ways of ways that they should or should not know how to behave in ways that are not imposed upon their white peers. What happens to children? Because I, you know, mm -hmm. I think about, um, like if you got in any kind of trouble mm -hmm. and you had to go to the principal's <laughs> office, like it was just the principal's office. Yeah. If you got in trouble, that was the worst possible yeah. thing. Like back in the day yeah. for me, yeah. Um, because then also your parents got a call, That's right. and it just it just was too much. Yeah. But what happens to children mm -hmm. when they are expelled or even arrested? Mm -hmm. Like what are what are the consequences of that? Because I know that yeah. if I was mortified by the thought of just having to go to the principal's mm -hmm. office and having my mother called, mm -hmm. not to say that I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying it happened that often, but let's say it did. Maybe it happened. Maybe also. it okay, did. Maybe, maybe it, it did. Yeah. But what are the consequences of being sure. arrested? What does that do, not just for their studies and being mm -hmm. able to focus in school or their social life mm -hmm. or even their mental health? Mm -hmm. What what does that do even for their future? Yeah, there are long-term impacts mm -hmm. of these type of um, policies for children. So yeah. that includes mental health concerns, um, fear of yeah. police, fear of um, society. Um, long-term mental health concerns is one large area. Hmm. Um, I think another area is actually academic performance. So there are studies that show that um, in districts where there is a higher proportion of funding spent on um, punitive discipline or policing in schools, that students' dropout rates are higher, mm. that students' academic success is lower. And in one study, I think this was in Texas, they related this to, like they took direct, like how much money did you get from the federal government at the middle school level for either law enforcement or punitive punishment, um, and how that played out over the course of children's, even just short-term academic lives to get out of high school. Yeah. And there were dramatic impacts. And I, I know for my preschool yeah. expulsion bill, one of the things that we talked about as I was you know, talking to other legislators and others about that bill is that um, being expelled in preschool, in pre, while mm -hmm. you're in preschool, uh, leads you to a much higher rate of high school dropout yeah of being a high school yeah. you know dropping out of high school so absolutely it has i mean there impact. are long-term and dramatic impacts and again not like on the life of the child but also on the life of the community hmm. right if your earliest um in a, if you're interacting with the criminal legal system as a child what is that how do you perceive the world in which you live how do you understand your own efficacy how do you understand your own ability to be an to have agency and be an agent of change when the state is getting involved to punish you as a child mm -hmm. you know there are long-term impacts not just for the individual child and their family but our broader communities absolutely now you know that i'm a restorative justice yes. uh, advocate and practitioner um, I know we're gonna talk as we close out about some of the things that can be done, but yeah. how have you seen restorative justice and restorative practices mm -hmm. utilized? Is that something that is, um, 
helpful? Is it, do you, I mean, are there barriers to being able to use restorative yeah. justice more in a more expansive fashion? Yeah, I think it's a really important shift. Mm -hmm. And I would say even looking here in Chicago, 10 or 15 years ago, you know, zero tolerance was part of the way of, of doing school. Um, and there has been a dramatic shift away from that. That's been an intentional shift by the school district here to move away from that. And you've seen that happen at the state level as well. Mm -hmm. um, the passage several years ago of SB 100, That's that right. young people, young black and brown people were at the forefront of pushing forward um, voices of youth voices. in Chicago yeah. education. And one of the things that they put forward, and I've been so impressed with their work, they put, you know, these are young people, high school students who are putting together policy briefs, who are bringing um, national associations of mental health and social workers together to bear on these subjects to the very point that you know you were bringing forward about the importance of restorative practices, the opportunity for restorative practices and other mental health supports to create an alternative vision of what safety can be. I remember talking with students from Voices mm -hmm. on another bill that I was working on as a state representative around um, they wanted to do something where they could invest money that was going into school resource officers mm -hmm. to be utilized for mental health services yeah. if the school chose to do yes. so. And I remember one of the young people saying, you know, if I'm coming to school, dealing with all that I do at home mm -hmm. and in my community, and if I'm having an anxiety attack, mm -hmm. it is not a police officer that I will need at that moment. Mm -hmm. I need a social worker. That's right. And we need to make sure that those resources um, exist. Yeah. And so I've just kind of thought a lot about, you know, um, what is, you know, a lot of people may not know what that term school resource officer mm -hmm. means because we have school resource officers throughout the state. Mm -hmm. And I know that in a conversation around sort of police in schools mm -hmm. that there's been many who have pushed back and said, you know, we have a school resource officer in mm -hmm. our school that works very well with our students mm -hmm. and and we're glad that they are in the mm -hmm. school. So how is that conversation? What is a school resource officer and what have been some of the conversations that have been taking place around this school to prison pipeline? Yeah. So school resource officers are sworn police officers who's who are assigned to school buildings. So they are police the police that are serving in schools, mm -hmm. our school resource officers. And I think there's been a very robust conversation about this topic, I think for many years, but has certainly been heightened um, this summer around, you know, in the aftermath of the uprisings that have been happening not just here but across the country. And around the globe. That's right. Really. Um, and so I think the conversation to your point, um, there are those who are really advocating hard to replace school resource officers with restorative practices, with wellness and holistic supports um, for young people and their school communities. And I think there are people who are also um, have an attachment to either their own idea of their experience in relationship to a school resource officer, or honestly, their fears. And, and I understand the fear, particularly the fear around mass shootings, which I think has been very heightened. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned before, the actual incidents of mass shootings are not as frequent. And unfortunately, school resource officers or police in schools have not prevented these. So many of these sort of most tragic and high profile mass shootings in schools, there have been school resource officers there and it has not prevented it. So I think what, I, what we're hearing in particular, I'm gonna say young people pressing for is an alternative vision of safety. Um, and that's been very inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. um, I've been very inspired by uh, particularly young black and brown people here in Chicago who are very forthright, <laughs> uh, act, act, advocating and organizing for um, restorative responses, for um, 
alternatives to police in schools for all the reasons they think that police shouldn't be in schools. And as those most impacted, right, mm -hmm. the young people in our buildings, I feel a duty to listen to them. Yeah, It feels important to listen to them. You know, you used the term and explained adultification. Yes. Let's talk about adultism. Yeah. Like, what is that? And how do you think it plays in when you have all these young people saying, this is what we want, this is what mm -hmm. we need. And I think it, it feels like almost every episode I have shared a young person who said to me, uh, as a young person who had been justice involved, mm -hmm. you all always ask us what we what we did, but you mm -hmm. never ask us what we need. That's right. So talk a little bit about adultism. Yeah. How does that come into play? Because you're you're seeing young people and you're engaging with young people who are saying, this is what we want. Yes. And for I also want to say like where I learned about adultism. So uh -huh. I learned about adultism, I don't even, a decade or so, a while ago from young people at the Chicago Freedom School, mm -hmm. right, who taught me about adultism and made me question the ways that I was you know, uh, enacting adultism. So adultism is when adults presume to know better than young people, yeah. when adults don't listen to young people, when we presume as adults that young people are naive and don't know what they're talking about and are able to disregard their opinions and views and ideas because of that. And I guess one thing that's been, young people have expanded my political imagination, right? Like, <laughs> that's you right. know, as you go through life, I think you're sometimes, unfortunately, we start thinking about all the reasons things can't happen. And young people remind me to think about all of the reasons things can happen and can be different. What's possible? What is possible, you know, and to demand those things that seem impossible. Yeah. Um, and that's I, intergenerational. I don't want to say it's only young people, but it's, it's more and more, and you know, I'm not that old, but <laughs> as I move but you on see, up. Yeah. yeah, and you see how they are just very passionate yes. about, like, we know what we know and are asking us to not just sort of pat them on the heads. That's like, right. Oh, you just, you know, pipe down, little one. You, yeah. They're like, no, we know. Yeah, and, and, and I know this, too. I feel like as a teacher, I used to be a, a high school, I taught, was a high school social studies instructor and a high school college counselor, and now I still teach undergraduates, many of whom are freshmen. Yeah. And every semester I learn more from them than I think Absolutely. I'm teaching them. So, you know, we're all li lifelong learners, and I think that's part of what is that's part of what keeps me hopeful about the moment that we're in is that we all have more to learn. We can always choose to do better. We can always expand our, you know, political imaginaries and our ideas of what's possible. And it's up to us to decide to be open to doing that. Absolutely. Well, I know that uh, as, as we kind of close out, I really mm -hmm. want to end by talking about what can be done sure. to really dismantle the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think there was a young person who, even kind of checked me a little mm -hmm. bit when saying how do we interrupt it but interrupting yeah. is really if you kind of think of this pipeline interrupting might be a little blip in mm -hmm. the line but it is not getting rid of it sure so they basically corrected me around how do we dismantle it is the question mm -hmm. because I don't know of anybody that mm -hmm. would willingly say, I want to see young people go to school and end up in prison. That's right. The idea of young people going to school, being educated, having the world before them, mm -hmm. uh, and being as successful as they can, I would say that's what any parent wants for their children. It should be what every community mm -hmm. wants for their, mm -hmm. for the young people, every, every educator wants. This is what we want. We want our young people to be educated. And mm -hmm. if they end up 
sort of on this path or this in this pipeline to prison, mm -hmm. that does not help any of us in our communities, and it mm -hmm. does not help keep communities safe, as you've mm -hmm. pointed out, and it also does not help uh, our young people realize their full potential. So what do we need to be thinking about right now around how to dismantle this school-to-prison pipeline? Yeah, well, I would start by going back to what I just said, which is to be open to listening and learning from young people and those most impacted by these policies um, and to hear what they're saying and to really take that in um, as a uh, motivator for action in wherever you are in society. And so I think, um, you know, whether that means for you getting, if you're in Chicago, getting involved with your local school council, if you're in other places in the state, if you're a parent in the PTA, if you're a student in the student council or any type of shared governance board in your school area, I think that's one way. Um, I think by advocating for more education funding, I mean, I think one thing the pandemic has taught us is that education, schools, public schools are a safety net for our entire society. Mm. Public schools are feeding families right now. Yeah. Public schools are a lifeline and point of contact at, through educators, through principals, through parents, through those whole school communities. And we need to fund them as if though they were that lifeline um, across the board. So I think that's something else. Um, and then I also think about, you know, restorative practices, as you mentioned before, are really important. And so, like, what are some of these things that we could, in our imagination, be funding? Some of those might be these restorative practices. They might be mental health services. They might be broader health care and wellness resources that are mm -hmm. community-based um, that we can fund. Things like what you're putting forward in the juvenile justice system in, you know, going away from warehousing children mm -hmm. to integrating them into their communities uh, to restore them in those places. And then I also think of other types of things that, um, you know, are building and are um, giving to our communities rather than just trying to contain them um, mm -hmm. or police them. So things like uh, I think about one of the programs that was run here in Chicago and Chicago public schools this summer called You Are Not Alone. Mm. And it was a program that paired high school students, um, young high school students with seniors in the Chicago Housing Authority. And the young people got paid to have conversations and do like informal oral histories I love this with, I love it right I to love do, this and this is this was a program put forward by Chicago Public Schools in coordination with CHA and community-based partners oh. where and it was amazing to hear from the young people who were involved and said you know one of the things they appreciated about the elders was that they listened yeah they heard me and I was able to listen to them and learn from them and that intergenerational dialogue is so powerful. And I think it's part of how we move forward and it's how we learn from each other. But the other things that stick out to me about that program is that those young people were paid this summer. They had a paid mm. opportunity that helped them to develop themselves individually, that gave them a sense of efficacy, mm -hmm. that gave them a connection to someone else in their community. Relationship. Relationship yeah. building. They're building skills that are going to help them in a career, but also in life, right? Mm -hmm. And that we are paying them to do that and that we know that our families are strapped yeah. and they need, they need money to live, right? And so I think thinking about more creative ways to build on how can we invest in our young people in ways that serve our entire community. Mm -hmm. And I'll bring that back to something, the point I was making about like focusing on black girls. One of the things that um, sort of people in world world development studies, that's not the term for that, but it's what's coming out right <laughs> but, now. But something like that, world right development. Now, talk about is um, how when you invest in women, you invest in a community. 
And I think we need to think about how are the ways that we can invest in girls, that we can invest in youth, that we can make our investments in ways that are community building, Mm -hmm. community sustaining, rather than community controlling or, um, you know, uh, community being punitive towards communities, um, caging communities, et cetera, right? There are exciting ways that we can solve the problems that we see around crime, around harm, by investing in holistic ways in our young people in our broader communities. No, absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking as we're talking about, and I love that idea of the intergenerational conversation, and I'm hoping that those who are listening might find or be inspired to find a young person that's either in their community or even in their family and just set aside an hour to just listen, Mm -hmm. to talk and to listen. Mm -hmm. Because I think that we learn so much and I think that um, part of not listening uh, and just needing a quick response yeah. is why we see some of the harsh disciplinary p- practices that we see, that if we spent more time listening to understand what happened at home, yeah. what happened in your community, yeah. what, are you, what, what you're going through today, mm-hmm. just like all of us, you would find the backstory mm-hmm. that might lead you to have a different response rather than a reaction. That's right. It brings it back to what you said, not what's wrong with you, why did you do this, but what do you need? What do you need? How can I help? Yeah. Right. And that's a that's a different way of moving in the world. And I think to your point about when you think about what does it mean to be a practitioner of restorative justice, it is about envisioning a different way to move in the world. And part of that is by the way that we approach people, by the questions we ask, by how we say, what are, you, what are your needs and how can we meet your needs? Because meeting your needs as an individual, as a family, is going to help meet our collective needs as a society. Wow. Elizabeth, thank you for walking, listening, and learning with us today. Uh, I I really appreciate your work and for talking through the school-to-prison pipeline with us today. Thank you so much. This was delightful. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. That's it for this episode of Walk, Listen, Learn, Our Journey to Justice. Until next time, I'm Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton. Thank you for walking, listening, and learning with me. Let's stay on this path towards justice, equity, and opportunity for all.